Hello and welcome back. It's been Yaman Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, with Mishpacha's Homefront, with a bi-weekly, wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Yaman. Hello, Gedalia. And we're going to start on a sorrowful note today. I just wanted to make a quick tribute to now more than 100 soldiers have been killed in the war, IDF soldiers. 31 of them have been killed just in the last week after the battle resumed. So that's a sign that the fighting is picking up and is becoming more dangerous to our soldiers. And the one point I wanted to make about that, besides, again, the tribute to the soldiers, that these are young men who are risking their lives for all of us. I might add that probably about 40 of the soldiers who have gotten killed are people on Milawim. So they're older men as well. And the point I'd like to make going forward is that we've heard a lot in the last week or two about the U.S. putting pressure on Israel to wrap things up in the next few weeks. And the problem with that, beside the fact that they're not uh, actually here on the ground to see what's going on, is that the more they press the IDF to hurry things up, then the more we have to put our soldiers at risk in order to get things done faster. So for a variety of reasons, but also just for the lives of our soldiers, which is probably paramount, we have to let the United States know that so far you've been very good to us and you've allowed us to work at our own pace. Please give us the time that we need to do what needs to be done. We'll answer their questions about humanitarian needs as we go along as well. But we can't have the U.S. press us into doing something that we shouldn't be doing at the cost to the lives of our young men. Benjamin, I just want to say that, concur that I get a sinking feeling every day I open up WhatsApp and I'm on a group which has updates from the IDF. And there's the same feeling as I scan the list, you know, it says there's this formulaic expressions that they use to report to confirm the death of a soldier. And then it says the name and where they're from. And I get it. It's a terrible feeling to see that and to scan the net, scan for names, and then to feel guilty about the fact that, that it doesn't make a difference whether you know them or not. These are Jewish boys, Jewish men. They're not going to come back. And overnight, the list, which expanded by four or five, was a contingent, clearly Miluim unit of the older soldiers. Many of them were in their late 30s, early 40s. And we have to remember that if you watch the videos, which are now pouring out of Gaza, many of them from the soldiers' GoPro cameras and part of the IDF spokesman's units attempt to tell the story more accurately, you can see the nature of the fighting over there, which is door-to-door, house-to-house, tremendously uncertain. This is business for commandos in well-planned raids. And yet this is what ordinary soldiers are having to do to go door to door and to risk their lives in this way to come through. And it gives you an idea of why this is taking so long and why it is such a slow going because everywhere they go, there are enormous amounts of weaponry of anti-personnel mines and this, and this is going to take time and time is something they don't have. And just to take you up on that point, Benjamin, Bibi emerged with a statement yesterday basically not calling out the U.S. by name, but saying if the international community wants to see Hamas defeated, and it does, then they also, they have to match that with the logical position that is going to take time and not to pressure. I think key is going to be, we've said from the beginning, the ability to stretch things, to keep deferring things, and to keep gaining another day, another week. And this is not an all or nothing game. This is a matter of getting a few more days legitimacy, a few more weeks legitimacy, that's what is going to make the difference between not just the success of the operation, but whether another Jewish boy comes back home. So I'm going to take Netanyahu's role on this to a different level, and I'm going to pose a question and also convey some information. 
Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday at the security cabinet meeting, which is a small group of members of the cabinet who are also in the war cabinet, they discussed the possibility of allowing more Palestinian workers from the Judea and Samaria area into Israel to do mainly construction, but also to do farm labor. We know that construction has ground to a halt since the war began. We also know that a lot of crops are rotting on the vine and in the fields because there's no one to pick them. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But Netanyahu brought a proposal to the security war cabinet to allow tens of thousands of Palestinian workers in to ease this labor crunch. The actual recommendation came from many people in the army and the intelligence service who say that if we don't do this, there's going to be a tremendous turmoil in uh, Judea and Samaria among the Arab population. And it's a pressure valve that we need to ease. And if we don't let them in, then we could be facing a second front. Now, I'm wondering if this isn't part of the same conceptia that we've been talking about for the past few months, that there is somehow a conception that we're responsible for the plight of the Palestinians and that if we just provide jobs for them, that they'll have money and they'll be busy working and then they'll be too tired when they get home at night to commit acts of terror. You know, we know for a fact that that's not true. We know for a fact that what happened in the Gaza area is that many of the uh, Hamas invaders on October 7th were people who worked in these communities and who learned the lay of the land. So considering the risks involved, you've got near Barkat, he's in the economic cabinet, he says, don't do this. And Bitsal Smotrich, the minister of finance, is the one who says that it's not going to happen on my watch. So the question that I'd like to pose as far as Netanyahu is concerned, on the one hand, Netanyahu is standing firm against the United States. On the other hand, he's at the same time, I think, telegraphing weakness by caving into the same mentality that got us into this mess to begin with. I just wonder, though, that what the alternative is. Yes, Israel's not responsible for them, but indeed there is a certain logic to that. Let's say there is a large percentage who are open to terror, but there's also economic despair and the lack of economic horizon does have consequences. I find it's hard to argue with. But to me, it's also a question of knowing how patchwork Israel's interaction with the Palestinians who live alongside that uh, actually is. And what I mean by that is that we can actually keep out the West Bank Palestinians. But remember that there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in East Jerusalem who have carry Israeli ID cards. They're free to move around and to work. And they have committed many terror attacks. When they are not allowed into the West, not allowed to, the place feels a lot safer. It was said towards the beginning of the war. We have no real solution for this kind of amorphous interaction that is happening. Yes, we can argue about the West Bank, but the door remains wide open to East Jerusalem. So I'll tell you what I would advise if I were part of this cabinet. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a contractor, a building contractor, who might be doing some work for us. And I asked him about the whole situation and how this is affecting his business. And he said the major problem is, is that there's no one to construct what's called the shelled of buildings except the Arabs. He said the iron work and the steel work and the ones who pour the concrete for the foundation and the base of the building, only Arabs do this work. That's now, interesting. Once you get past that stage, so a lot of the electrical work and the plumbing work, I would say most of it is done by Jewish labor. But he said that these are the people that we're lacking right now. And you know, my answer to him is... You know, why don't you pay people a decent wage instead of relying on cheap labor? 
if you paid people a decent wage, then you might get Jewish help and they would learn how to build buildings. And at the same time, if you're worried that it's going to increase the cost of construction, so maybe the time has come to finally break the cement monopoly that we have here in Israel, that you have one company that provides all the cement for construction for the last 70 years. Yeah. And nobody else can get into the business. And if there's anything that increases the cost of building, it's that. So that's what I would advise. And but, you know, plus the cost of land itself, which is kept artificially high because the way in which they withhold most of the land needed for development. That's also something that has to change because, you know, from uh, the Torah, the land belongs to us and it should have been divided up. And it was once divided up among all the tribes. And that's what they need to do also. Now, I realize that if they totally deflate the price of land or give it away, then it could end up reducing prices of housing seriously, and then it could reduce the value of the homes that people already own. And I think that's a big concern because we know here in Israel that for so many people, their primary home is their major and sometimes their only asset. So if there's a scarcity of housing and an apartment is valued at 3 million shekels and all of a sudden uh, new apartments can be built at the same standard for 1.5 million, then how many people are going to pay you 3 million so that uh, you can then move up and do something better? That's a serious concern and it really has to be addressed in a thorough and competent manner. But yeah, and let's move on to the US and not to talk real estate and compare the fact that you can build yourself a palace, but a song in many places in the US. But let's talk about the aftershock still going from the anti-Semitism on campus and in particular the testimony in Congress last week by heads and presidents of three Ivy League schools in which they basically squirmed their way out of saying of, they basically said that it wasn't that any expressing genocidal opinions against Jews was basically free speech or wouldn't be limited on campus. And that caused shockwaves and we're still seeing that indeed since then the president of the University of Pennsylvania has resigned and they're going for the next two as well. Well, my first thought is that apparently you have to be much smarter to get accepted to these universities than you need to be to run them. And I find it hard to believe that three well-educated, professional, highly accomplished academics could have sat in front of Congress and said the things they said. It's like they were all programmed. They all said the same thing. They all answered the questions or didn't answer the questions in the same way. It's almost like they were fed talking points by someone and they couldn't think for themselves. And I can understand that because there's a couple of reasons why this has happened. Number one, for decades now, there's so many organizations that have provided funding for campus organizations, such as BDS organizations, other anti-Israel organizations. In Jerusalem, there's a, a group called NGO Monitor, and they issued a report. I was looking at this over the weekend back in 2015, uh, showing how a group called Students for Justice in Palestine, which has more than 200 chapters at U.S. and Canadian universities, they have links to a dozen more organizations whose entire goal is to set up campus organizations to attract students to defame Israel and recruit more followers to that. And... Uh, there are thousands and thousands of young people who've been graduated from these universities for the last couple of decades and who are attending these colleges now. And they've had their minds poisoned by this. And I think that some of the university professors have had their minds poisoned by this also. Now, I do want to say one good thing that I saw last week happen, which might be the first step to changing this, is the U.S. House of Representatives voted last Wednesday, 246 to 170, to strengthen a key provision of something called Section 117 
of the Higher Education Act. Now, this act requires universities to report foreign gifts or contracts of over $250,000. Uh, however, you can pass a law, but you need to enforce it. It's never really been enforced, and it, these universities therefore haven't been held accountable. So now, after this bill passes, and assuming it'll pass in the Senate, and assuming that President Biden signs it, the law is going to have teeth. And the universities are going to have to not only report these gifts on a regular scheduled basis, but they're also going to have to explain what the funds were used for. And the Middle East Forum pointed out, another NGO whose research I follow closely, that there's been a big loophole. It's allowed foreign countries such as Qatar and China, we've heard of both of them, to quietly fund potentially disreputable projects or individuals. So I'm glad to see the House took action. The Senate needs to pass its companion bill and the president needs to sign it. And that's at least one step in the right direction. But you know, and I think it's, that's testament to the enduring power of politicians to actually shape the world. They make laws. Laws can have an effect, you know, and we've seen it again and again when courts, for example, which is a different form of hard power in the real world, when courts enforce, for example, libel, that can put a stop to some of the very, very bad stuff going on in the online world. And that's a parallel example where you see that things that had been assumed to be unstoppable and a fact of life have been altered by use of the courts. And Congress still firmly behind Israel and, and against anti-Semitism. It's time for the politicians. They have the room and the wherewithal to act on this. And I want to just end with something Hanukkah related in the theme of policy, Middle East policy over here. And it's actually, this is no gimmick. Just share some thoughts that have been maturing over the last few years about the connection between the modern state of Israel and going back thousands of years to the Cheshmanoim and the country that they ran then. So this goes back to a couple of years ago, I had a fascinating tour up Kvish Tishim, which is the Jordan Valley route that goes the, all the way from the north of the country down to the south with a man called Rabbi Hudolandi, who was a tremendous, it was Zechot was Nifta a few months ago, it was a tremendous and unusual time of who combined the ability to quote from extensively archaeology, history, with his kind of almost total recall of anything Roshonim and Achoronim. And it was a tremendous experience just to drive up that road with him. And he would point out, well, here the Hashmaron built a fortress and here was Herod's thing. And over here was this ancient worship site. And it was very illuminating. And one thing that impressed me was that when we were driving, driving, as I said, northwards, he said, we are now in the center of the country. Now we kind of think of the Jordan, the Rift Valley as the eastern border of the country. He says, no, that's the spine of the country. Because when you take into account that there was the Eva Hayaradin, there was the eastern bank or the east bank or what's now the state of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. The Eva Hayaradin in the time of extensive periods in Jewish history was Jewish and including under the Hashemite where the empire of the Hasmonean empire extended far to the east bank, Jordan, deep into what's called the Levant of Lebanon, Syria, etc. As he said, this is now in the spine. And I understood two things, and this is why I think about so much of it, which is we know the spiritual reasons why the, the, why the Hashemite brought down, they shouldn't have been the kings, etc. But we know in terms of geopolitics, what happened was they were sucked in by rival powers. An uncanny parallel going on here in Yemen, which is that back then, just if someone would say to you, well, what is it called when you have a powerful Jewish state in the land of Israel? with a strong military and economy, it's a bridge between East and West, you would say, well, that's the modern state of Israel. And you'd be right. But that was also the ancient state of the Hashemunoyim. They were major regional players, and yet they were brought down. 
and eventually led to the Khurban. They were sucked in by rival powers. The two squabbling Hasmonean princelings brought in rival Roman factions that led to the Khurban. And so for me, I mean, I've thought about this repeatedly, but I've thought about this recently as well, which is that the lessons over here, kind of as a chancy thing drawing historical parallels, but there's a danger in what we saw over the last year, especially with the Israel's left wing, it ran to the White House and to the major media organs in America to wash Israel's dirty linen in public. And that was a very dangerous thing to bring in the outside and say, you settle our internal squabbles. That's a bad precedent. And there's a second takeaway, which is we know there's a great game going on between China, Russia, and America now across the world and in the Middle East again. And we have to do everything in our power not to become crushed by it. So if there's one sort of geopolitical takeaway that Israeli leaders should have from the story of the Hashmanoi and the demise of the ancient state is that you should do everything in your power not to become crushed by these great powers. We've got to stay on side of all of them if we can. And that only requires Siyat al-Dishmai. So Binyam, there's some Hanukkah lessons. I'm sure you'll digest that. And I wish you and listeners everywhere a good and Freilich and Hanukkah.